This is Midlife Whatever, the podcast that examines how Gen Xers, Xennials, and older millennials are navigating midlife differently than our ancestors. On today's episode, I talked to John, a true Renaissance man. John is easily one of the most interesting people I know. He has lived and worked all over the world, plays musical instruments, is a phenomenal cook, and has pursued a master's degree and PhD in fermentation sciences after the age of 40. However, the reason why I love John is because he was one of my sanity savers in a toxic work environment. His kindness and gentle spirit was a rock all while he navigated overt and subversive racism, and I navigated a pre-Me Too hellscape of sexual harassment. We've maintained intermittent contact over the years as two friends who have had universal struggles, even though we live thousands of miles apart. Thank you for being here, John. How are you? I'm doing okay, Kelly. I, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for reaching out. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons, I mean, I, I've always thought of you over the years because, like I've mentioned in the intro, you had a, a path that was seemingly linear by design. You did Peace Corps. You went into the INGO world. There's, in that industry, there's this track and presumptions people make about where you will go. And suddenly you changed courses. So can you tell us a little bit about how and why that happened? So, you know, I, I, as you kind of mentioned in your intro, the, the place where we worked um, was toxic, I think is a gentle word for, for how that environment was. Um, I, I throw around words like nepotism, um, you know, just angry one-upsmanship people trying to get other people to rat on each other. And, and it wasn't a really game that I was comfortable playing. It wasn't a game that I wanted to play. You know, I, I always feel like, you know, the tides rise all ships. And so if we're struggling and fighting each other and stabbing each other in the back, then it really doesn't make sense to get the work done. And what I really cared about was the work was helping our target communities and, and doing, uh, doing our best to kind of get the most out of the donor money so that we could um, help the, the average person who needed our, our, our skills and our assistance and our, and our services. And so, you know, when I realized that there, that was the game that I had to play to kind of move forward, uh, that wasn't really something I was willing to do. It wasn't uh, a space that I wanted to be in. Um, it wasn't the type of work relationship that I wanted to continue to have. And I still you have integrity. With... What? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that at the end of the day, like I, I didn't want to wake up in the morning. And if you know, we were working in DC and I lived in Baltimore, so it was an hour and a half commute door to door. Uh, so that meant getting up at four so I could get to DC early enough to be, to catch the last few hours of the workday in Southern Africa. And, uh, and I just didn't want to do that day after day and not see my kids and travel for weeks at a time and, you know, get right off the plane and go right into a 12 hour workday without a shower, you know, just, just all of these things. It wasn't, it wasn't anything that was really good for my health. And so when my daughter was born, I said, well, why don't we hit the reset button? Why don't I take a little bit of time and think about what it is I really want to do? So I left and I, I took some time home with the kids, uh, which I think was the best. And so I wouldn't change that time uh, for the world. But when I think about that organization, I mean, I get chills. We, I still talk to our old coworkers and, you know, all, none of us wish we were still there. 
I want to touch on the fact that you, first, you're a man who chose to stay home. So one, that's rare. Second, you're a black man who chose to stay home. That it feels to me as a white woman looking from the outside, that feels to me like it's an even more rare phenomenon. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you and your your identity or how that felt for you? Well, I mean, I could talk about, yeah, certainly my, my personal experience, although I am seeing a lot more black men making that decision to stay home um, in the last four or five years. Um, but I think for me, the struggle was, you know, I went to Morehouse College, uh, which is the university, the college that Dr. King went to. And, and, you know, we're kind of imbued with this idea that we have a responsibility to carry forward progress. And so, you know, and I've always kind of felt that that's why I did my Peace Corps service in West Africa. That's why I chose to work in Southern Africa for the INGO. Um, you know, I, I really had internalized that mandate. Um, and so when I left to stay home with the kids, it was very challenging for me to let go of that mandate for a while, to be able to set that down because, you know, the, the, this idea that we have to give up everything to push forward, uh, to, to help us kind of evolve and, and, and claim our place in this society, I, I think can be really damaging to a lot of black Americans, um, uh, because we we often do that at the expense of a lot of other things that were important. Um, and so for me, I struggled with that a lot. Um, I knew I was in the right place. I knew I needed to be with my kids. I knew that my son needed me at that time. Um, but I felt like, gosh, I have all this education, you know, I have all these experiences, I have all these skills. Uh, and it was a, it was really challenging to fight this idea that I was wasting my time doing that. And how silly is that? Like wasting your time being present with your kids, you know, really taking time to give, you know, your, at least one of your kids, the support that they need, um, to help them evolve and develop and, and so that they can kind of grow up and be positive human beings. I felt guilty about that. And, and I, and I don't, you know, I think back on it now and I was like, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Of course I needed to be at home and there was no one else who could do it. Uh, and you know, when I look at my kids today, I mean, they are strong, confident, uh, emotionally, you know, uh, secure ish kids as, as most as kids can be at that age. Right. But, you know, but what they can do very well, and this is something that their teachers and their uh, doctors always say as well. I've, I've never met kids that can communicate their feelings this way. And, and that's I'm like, fantastic. That's, that's awesome. yeah, yeah. And I think that's awesome. And if I hadn't stayed home, Maybe I wouldn't be able to understand why my son was angry or why my daughter is not paying attention or why, you know, or, or maybe I wouldn't have the patience to ask, why did you get upset over this little thing? Like, what else is going on? And I think that time, because kids are in the moment, they're goldfish brains, you know, you deal with them right, <laughs> then, right then and there. And if you don't catch, if you don't catch that moment appropriately, if you're not able to ask those questions at the right time, you miss an opportunity to make a connection and kind of understand uh, what what they are, are going through. So I think, you know, I spent uh, about a year and a half exclusively with my kids before I started preparing to go back to school. And uh, I mean, it was just 18 months. 
It was oh, but it, sometimes it feels like ten. I, I did the same thing, and it can feel like ten years. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> what is it? The days are long. The years are short. The days are decades. Exactly. The years are seconds. Exactly. That's what I say. Exactly. And you know, you you uh, you the, just the the whirlwind of entropy, right? Like you clean a room, you walk into another room to fold laundry, you come back, that room's in chaos again, day after day. You know, trying to get them to activities that will enrich their minds, trying to get them to use, to develop new skills, to, I mean, it's just, and it's so breathtakingly thankless. Like, mm-hmm. there's no, there's no one that's like, thanks, dad, that was a fun day, you know, until they're much older. Yes. <laughs> or, or whatever. Or, wow, I can really see you've worked really hard. You just have to kind of have the grit to, to tell yourself, I did a good job today. Yes. And even if you even if you yelled at your kids or you slammed the door or you you had to step outside and take a deep breath, you still did a good job. And mm-hmm. and that's you know that it, I think it, that's a realization I didn't come to until much later. So the same. It's you know it's taking taken me so long uh, to realize. Oh, I am enough in this mm-hmm. because I always thought I, I really had, I never had the materialistic keeping up with the Joneses, but I've had for myself, the parenting mom keeping up with the momses, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I finally only in the past since um, my son was diagnosed with autism have started to let go. And only recently really started to let go of these, notions oh i am enough this is fine and you know and i and i think you're touching on one of the things that i you know hated most about uh parental culture particularly for young parents when when because you and i had our kids at at nearly the same time Mm -hmm. uh you know it's this idea of judging other parents and it's something that that i will not do you know if you if you feed your kids flaming hot cheeto smack craft dinner every night and and the little barrels of toxic juice we used to drink back in the in the nineties. Oh yeah. If that's what you need to do to get through the day, then bravo to you. Like I, you know, I had a neighbor who whose son ran out of the, he was, must have been like three or four at the time. He ran out of the house, and she threw a water bottle on the ground at him. And then she saw me and was like, "Oh my gosh, what you must think?" I was like, "I'm sure you. I'm sure he pushed you to the edge. Like you're not going to get judgment from me. Like and I and I think that if we could all just forgive." parents period as long as they're not hurting their children or abusing them or tearing them down emotionally like uh, do what you got to do yes really you know and i and i and i think i'm you know i'm surprised that that see i guess i'm not but i am surprised to hear that you have these doubts because if there's one word that i would always associate with you is capable like when you 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 were gonna have a kid i'm like oh shit kelly's gonna be a great mom like that's gonna be awesome to have Kelly's mom, and and so it's it's the voices inside of us that tell us that we're not doing well enough because there are not that many people, particularly now, when most of us are living a thousand miles away from our family. You know, there's mm-hmm. nobody else who's gonna say it. You know, who else is gonna say that to us? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I even think about the parents that I know that I'm good friends with here. I don't think I've ever told them I thought they were good parents, and why is that? Yeah, we should do that. Hey, listener, listeners, if there's more than one of you out there, (laughs) tell the next set of parents you see, hey, you're doing a great job. I'm proud of you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that feels good. You know, that's like 
I can be told, oh, you you look prettier. You're really smart. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Or yeah, whatever, you know. Yeah. But if someone tells me I'm a good parent, that that just that makes my heart swell a little more yeah. than any other compliment. Yeah. So. And, I, and I think the closest that I get is every once in a while when I see a parent having a hard time, I'll just walk up and tell them, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. Uh, you're going to make you're going to make it through this. And, and you know, and it's I I think that was something that I wish I I had heard, you know, carrying my son over my shoulder, screaming for a mile and a half back to the to the house, or you know, um, when he when he threw off all of his clothes <laughs> one day in a snowstorm and ran in his underwear out into the snow because he was mad at me, and here I am, a grown man chasing a three year old in the snow through the cities of, of Baltimore. Oh so, my God. It's so ridiculous. Well, people are like, is this your child? Is that your baby? <laughs> ridiculous. If one person had said, it's going to be okay. <laughs> yes. That would have made the world a difference. <laughs> yes. Instead, you know, I had a similar situation happen in North Carolina and mm. I was worried that this woman, a woman came and knocked on the door. I was like, did you know your son was outside? And I was like, Yes. And then I thought she was going to call CPS. You know, all the, you tell these stories in your head all because like someone assumes the worst. So let's try not to assume the worst people. That's the message that I think we should put out there. Um, so so tell, me, tell me about the decision to move to North Carolina because I have all of these friends <laughs> that, I mean, you're like at least one of four people that I know that have lived all over the world that uh, have... Um, identities and personalities that are not conducive to small town South. And all four of you move to these ding-a-dang-do places in the South. And I know Asheville's not really ding-a-dang-do, but it's ding-a-dang-do. I mean, it's, it's you know, <laughs> it, it, I have a special place in my heart for Asheville. I grew up in Charlotte, so two okay. hours from Asheville. And we went when I was growing up for a family friend, dear, like lifelong family friends of theirs. So they were our closest family because the rest of our family lived on the other side of the country. And so we'd go there every holiday. And then as Asheville, looking from overseas and living where I've lived, um, Asheville was being touted as like, oh, it's it's good craft beer scene. It's great nature scene, great art scene, great food scene. Um, and actually all of those things are true. It wants to be is this beautiful, diverse, hippie utopia. But it's really this like, quote, woke white liberal island in the middle of a like red, a sea of red with who I call if um, basically Dr. Strangelove and Rolf from the Sound of Music had a love child, Madison Cawthorn <laughs> is like their representative. Um, and so it's, it, it's endearing if you're a white person, if you're a queer white person, basically if you're a queer white person, it's a safe space. But mm. if you are BIPOC or... Um, or you're trans, it's not, it's not quite a safe space. It's very, there's a ton of income inequality, which mm. is so painfully obvious. And we didn't realize that when we moved there and we contributed to it. I'm not going to lie. And we didn't realize how badly we were contributing to it because we were making 
DC and New York salaries. And we're like, Ooh, look at this beautiful house we can buy for hardly any money. And then of course the pandemic hit, we missed France so much for healthcare and culture and whatnot. We had the opportunity to return. So we sold our house, made a lot more money on it. And we sold it to someone moving there from DC who sold their place in Alexandria. So we just perpetuated the income inequality cycle, the rising housing prices. Um, it is still such an alluring community with a lot of heart and people are kind. Um, but it's, yeah. And at the end of the day, what we realized is now we realized that we were trying to run to escape um, by moving. And now we're learning to sit and settle with our, our, our emotional situations and our, our growth, pro our painful midlife growth processes, as opposed to let's move <laughs> to the next shiny place on the map. Right. So, right. Yeah. So what about you moving from Baltimore, which is, uh, has one of the highest concentrations of black people in the U S to one of the whitest States in America, <laughs> So I, I have a, I had a, a a boss here. I used to work because you know I like I like community work, and I had a so I was a community coordinator at the international student housing here. And so when we first moved, my neighborhood was it was the most diverse neighborhood in Fort Collins. Right, it was all graduate students with families, and they all were you know from China, from Libya, from Pakistan, from India, from various parts of Africa, you know. And so when we moved here, you know, we spent two years in that space or three, three years in that space. And I was like, this is awesome. Like I can deal with everything else out here outside and I can come back here and feel comfortable. And then my second year there, I had a boss who called Fort Collins White Wakanda. And I like that, that is like the perfect name for Fort Collins because people really here, you could live your entire life here and not really know uh, anything about anything, right? Like yeah. the bike path, everything is bike friendly. You know, my kids could ride from my house all the way to their school without ever being on a major road, uh, mostly on a bike trail. Um, you know, everybody's got dogs here and you bring your dogs out. You know, people have chickens, they, the breweries are everywhere. You ride your Sounds bike. Sounds like Asheville. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it is a lot like Asheville. Um, but underneath all of that is just this, because it's, this is a white space, my presence is questioned everywhere. Mm. And so my first couple of years here, one of the most frequent questions I got when I was out and about was, how does it feel being the only black person in the space? And so, you know, my response to that was usually, well, I wasn't thinking about that, but now that you've brought it up, I guess I have to deal with it. Uh, and, and it was just a way of kind of saying, Hey, look, you don't have to tell me that I'm the only black guy in this room. I'm, I'm, I'm very much cognizant of that fact. Uh, and I'm also very much cognizant of the fact that all of you know that I'm the only one here because you've all been looking at me. Um, but then underneath that, there is just, uh, there's a group of people here in Fort Collins that just feel really comfortable just shouting racism at any time, mm -hmm. right? You ride your bike. You know, people will tell you you need to die, go crash into the bike, you know, the bike lane. Um, I have a, I drive a Nissan Leaf. Right. And so I'm a big guy. And, uh, you know, so it's a fat guy in a little car. I get it. Uh, and so I was getting out of this car 
And this guy walks up to me. He's like, I'm going to share a joke with you. And by the way, anybody who oh, God. Way is, is not going to say anything good. He's like, you look like a gorilla getting out of a walnut. And I was like, well, <laughs> and so I just stood there and looked at him because, you know, my, my, my want, my desire was to get angry and cause a scene and all this other stuff. But again, I'm in Fort Collins. This is in Baltimore. In Baltimore, I could get angry and, and cause a scene and, and that person would know that they were not, you know, they were not in the right to come up and say something like that to me. But here in Fort Collins, you got to swallow that shit sometimes. Like, it's just, it's just like, okay. And so I stood there and I stared him in the eye and I didn't say a word. And then I think he got uncomfortable and walked away. But, you know, but it's like once every couple of months, somebody will just, just randomly walking by me will shout something. Uh, and so people talk about Fort Collins as this utopia. It's, it is a beautiful place to live. It's a wonderful place for children. Um, but you know, my presence is questioned everywhere. I've been pulled over two or three dozen times since we moved here. I got my first ticket in 25 years since we moved here. Oh, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, and it was a bullshit ticket. I, I don't even, I was just so taken aback that I got, I got that ticket. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's just kind of one of these places where we moved here because my wife could work her job here. And so that's the kind of the only reason why we came to Fort Collins and we're staying here because my, my son didn't do quite well with the move and he's happy here and he's got good friends here. And so we're just going to stay here until the kids, you know, graduate. And then we're, I th- I'm sure we're going to go back East cause I can't stay here forever. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's it's kind of this weird mix of like uh, a just beautiful prairie meets the mountains utopia with all of this latent and overt racism and, you know, kind of bubbling near the surface. So I wanted to touch on the uh, something you mentioned earlier where you in knowing like I've dealt with my share of totally different microaggressions and I know that throughout the years, because I wasn't able to cope with them properly, it's they, they, I would repress the feelings that they brought up and they surfaced in recently in the past few years as a result of the pandemic and being forced to actually sit with my emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've, I was not able to cope with them properly and I used poor coping mechanisms Um, I was wondering how you have coped with the years of micro and overt aggressions so that now you are able to sit with these emotions and not get angry in the moment and yet not harm, not hold them inside and have all that cortisol build up or do you struggle with that? Well, I mean, I think the honest answer is that some days are better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, one thing unique uh, that I'm realizing to the black American community is that we teach our kids to expect this, mm. you know, like I grew up being told this is how it's going to be. Here's how you deal with it. You know, here's what's going on. Um, I went to a college that that had weekly sessions. You know, every for three years, you had to take three years of of uh, 
of, of Crown Forum where they talk about these issues and they talk about how to deal with them and they kind of prepare you for them. So I think one thing that the Black American community does very well is, is prepare their children. We prepare our children for this reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I was <laughs> I was sitting uh, in the lab with a with a, a, a guy who recently who was visiting um, from another university and he was here doing work and and I he saw me watching kind of I don't know it was something about these young black teenagers who were starting entrepreneurships and he asked me well you know oh it's, I've I've been seeing that a lot lately why why is this uh, all of a sudden for you know to see everyone like we know that that black people are doing well and I was like well this isn't for you this is for us you know we do this for us because the world tells us that that we are not. We are not enough. I mean, you just just look at what's happening in Ukraine, you know, mm-hmm. which I empathize for all of the Ukrainians and I and I want them to to kind of to to overcome the challenges that they're having. Uh, and it's funny how even amidst all of that challenge, there's still room for racism. There's still room to deny people of color escape. And then that then the audacity that it takes to say, well, you could stay here and fight for a country in which you don't get equal treatment. Uh, and so the resilience is kind of built in to our, our cultural understanding of what our place is in this country. Uh, that being said, it's a day-to-day struggle. You know, some days I can hear that stuff and be like, you know, whatever. Like, it's like, that doesn't have anything to do with me. This is not somebody who defines who I am, et cetera. And then there are other days where you just feel so angry and you're like, you know, <laughs> so, like today with everything going on I got to deal with this too uh, and so what you what you really have to kind of be able to do and I think that this is uh, this is something that and I'll allude to something that I saw in, on the DC Metro I'm sure you saw in a minute what you have to do is be able to, to develop a way to kind of move through that and those of us who don't you see them like the guy on the on the metro in DC just screaming "fuck Whitey" and "fuck this that and the other." Like every once in a while, <laughs> yes. you know, everybody's sitting there looking at this guy. But I understand that guy. That yeah. was a guy whose coping mechanism failed that day. Yeah, you know, and and I get I get the urge to scream that because you you know at least on that level in the metro you can assert the very basic right of freedom of speech. In a way that 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 is not only not only his right as a or, or or their right as a human being, but also in a way that says that I have every right to be in this space and I can say what I want to, and you're just going to have to deal with it the way that I have to deal with all the shit that you guys say to me. Yes. And well, well, I've never been that guy. I under I totally understand that guy. Like I, I <laughs> and really, every part of me wanted to go be like, hey, man. How you doing? You want to go have a drink, of course, but you know Metro rules. You look the other way, and, and you, you look down at your newspaper. Well, back then yeah. it was maybe a Kindle. <laughs> yeah, but man, there's been part, there's parts of me that has wanted to be that guy, and you know what has stopped me from being that guy is a lot of the lessons that I learned from my parents growing up, but also and it, this notion that I referred to again that my responsibility is to progress. Mm-hmm. And while I understand those moments where anger can overcome an individual, 
you know, at some point we have to work in the system that we're in to break that system. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we're, we're not the gatekeepers yet. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, and I play around with that because I'm, I also don't want to have to play that game. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to, my so my dad, uh, there was a, there was a, a, a documentary about the first black heavyweight champion called unforgivable blackness. Um, and I always envision that with my dad. My dad loved to be unforgivably black. So we would move into these white neighborhoods and every morning he would stand on the front porch in his 1970s short shorts with his business dangerously nearing the edge (laughs) of those shorts and his, and no shirt on and his cup of coffee. And he would look in the eye of every neighbor and tell them good morning with a big old grin. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Jim. Because and that was his way of saying, "Yeah, I'm in this space. I paid my money. And what are you going to do about it?" And and I and I love the way that he did that because it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't. Uh, it all of the threat was was perceived within the neighbors' minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they weren't going to do was tell him he didn't belong there. And so, for me, I like to err on the side of unforgivable blackness uh, with a smile on my face, even if I'm saying "fuck you" with that smile. So <laughs> I love that. It it's interesting because unfortunately from the the woke white woke white woman perspective, again I use quotes, um it that feels brave to me, but it shouldn't. It's it and I think that's me projecting my own fears of when I when I had to hide my sexuality, but that feels brave and it's such a wonderful statement. It's almost like hanging a gay flag on your, on your house back in the day when it was a little more dangerous to be gay. And it's, it, I, I truly respect and appreciate that. And I, I understand that I'll never understand what, what your family has gone through. Um, seeing that and having that and learning all of these lessons, well, being taught these lessons and what to expect growing up, what, what is it like as a parent? It, does it add this other level of, of anxiety or because you know, um, because you've lived it, you grew up learning this, it just comes second nature to you. Um, I, you know, I think I think it's a little different for me than it was for my parents, largely because my kids are biracial, and you know, my wife is white, and my kids are are biracial, and so they, while my daughter fully embraces her blackness, fully, uh, and in fact, she said to me the other day, and I was, <laughs> I wanted to like jump up and cheer down. She she said, Papa, I I wish. I wish I lived, well, she asked me when the last pandemic was, and I said it was the early 1900s, and she said, I wish I lived back then. And I said, well, why on earth would you want to live back then? And she said, well, I'd, I'd rather die fighting for my black culture than, than from the pandemic. And, and I was like, oh, snap, like that's, yeah. that's you know, and, uh, you know, my son, on the other hand, he's firmly in the middle between our two cultures. And so while there's a part of me that wants to respect his, his dual identity, his biracial identity, 
it is my job to train him for how the world will receive him. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't look anything other than black. Like mm-hmm. he, I mean, he may look biracial to some people who who know, but those who don't who don't uh, who don't bother to to make those little individual distinctions. Like he's a young black man, mm-hmm. and so my urgency is to get him to realize that Fort Collins does not represent the world that he's going to experience when he he becomes an adult. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't represent the dangers that he's going to encounter. Um, you know, the the full idea that the police are not safe, like they're just not safe. And it doesn't mean that they're individuals, the individual human beings are not safe or they're not good people. I, and I don't think this is one thing a lot of people don't understand. I think for most, or at least for me, I guess I can't speak for most of us, but for me, uh, it, it's not personal. It's not Tom the cop that I'm upset with. Mm-hmm. It's police and police culture. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you when you when you're trying to tell your kids, hey, look, you got to p- treat police like a strange dog. You know, you don't just go up and pet any old dog because you don't know if they're dangerous or not. yet. You need to be cautious. You need to be careful. There are ways that you interact with them. And then you see what happens. And that will tell you whether or not you can interact with this person on, on a personal level. Uh, and there was a, there was a time when this cop came, we were, I was, we were down by the river and we were letting my dog swim, uh, in the river. And this cop rode up on a bicycle and I was talking to my daughter and he basically stepped in between my daughter and I didn't say a word to me and handed her these police stickers. And I said, excuse me, uh, I would appreciate it if you talk to me before you talk to my daughter. And he's like, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a police officer, you know? everything's fine here. And I asked him, I said, well, what makes you think that, and this was after George Floyd, right? I was like, what makes you think that that counts for safety? What makes you think your uniform makes me feel safe? And he looked abashed and I think he understood what he had done, but can you name any other group of people where one adult would completely ignore the parents to give a gift to a child and not be challenged? And yet he was surprised to be challenged. Uh, and I think that this is a lesson that, because we live in Fort Collins, is difficult to illustrate to my kids. When we go to, you know, Alabama to visit family or Georgia or back to Baltimore, I mean, it's much easier to see. Um, but here, it's a challenge to get them to understand because, like, like they don't have any black friends. There are no black kids in their classes. You know, there are no black kids in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't even drive to a place where there are black kids for them to play with just out and about. I would have to go, I would have to drive uh, two hours to Denver to do that. Um, and so that's prohibitive right now. And so it's, it's a challenge and it's something that I worry about. So I do all the things that my parents did. We read the books, we watch the movies, we watch the documentaries, uh, I think um, my son and I are going to watch uh, James Baldwin's I'm Not Your Negro this weekend, which is an outstanding, outstanding documentary. Um, yes. You know, we went to we went to the lynching museum in, in uh, Montgomery so they could visualize it. And that's uh, if you ever have an opportunity to go. What a what a breathtaking visualization of the, the lynching history of this country. Um, you know, they just passed the Emmett Till lynching act and. Uh, you know, anti-lynching act. And 
my kids were like, well, that's a little late. I was like, people are getting lynched today. They're getting lynched yes. today. You know, yes. Ahmaud Arbery was lynched. He, he was yes. lynched by people. Uh, with a gun, you know, it's, not a rope. With a gun. I mean, it, and it's just, it's, it's something that they have a hard time seeing because, you know, I grew up around black people and we talked about it all the time. Mm-hmm. But in, even amongst, you know, those of us who were, who were friends, but my kids' friends have, are, have, have only ever been in Fort Collins. And so they, not only is it, not only is it not on their radar, their parents don't talk to their friends about them, about it. And they're, uh, so there is no kind of shared experience there. And my son is getting to an age where I'm going to have to start talking to his parents about, Hey, look, have you talked to your kids? about what to do if a police approaches, like not leaving my son alone, not antagonizing the police when you're with my son. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many lessons of support that these parents don't even know to give their children to protect my son. Like they don't understand that he's in more, far yes. more danger in their situations than, than, than their own children are. So Yes, white people. So I, I, Listen, I, I, I worry about to, it a lot. to be a real ally. I ask, <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't ask. Do research. Don't ask any black person. Do research on how to be a true ally if your children <laughs> have black friends and are approached by the police. Because I, for one, as a white female, I was literally culturalized socialized that I could sass a cop like or just bat my eyes and talk syrup sweet southern oh I'm sorry officer what did I do I literally talked my way out of almost every ticket except the one that I truly deserved that was given to me by a black state trooper and white people do this for your black friends and tell your children to do this for your black friends, have them get in the way of between the cop and their black friends or their friends of color. Like this is literally a life or death situation. Yeah, You know, I, Oh, can you hear me? Okay. No, what I, what I was saying was I don't yeah. think people really understand that. And I don't think people, you know, you know, and, and, what, and what's really surprising to me is that if you look at black culture, like media, music, stand-up comedy, movies, the message is consistent. It has always yes. been, oh, this is the way the cops treat us. And this is how, and then all of a sudden, and nobody believed us <laughs> until you started seeing these videos. And it's like, oh, this is what's happening now. And with all the videos that we do see, like, what about all those videos that we don't see or those videos that never get shot? You know, how, how about yes. all these people that that did, act, randomly died in custody? There was one there was recently an indigenous person who went into cardiac arrest, an indigenous man and a cardiac arrest in a, in a detention facility. And the two officers argued about whose responsibility it was to call and what kind of care they were going to give until that individual died on the floor. And, you know, and the there is a lack of urgency to our distress, Um, you know, and there's this generalized belief that we can take more pain, which is why black women don't get the same quality of care 
when they give birth or we're not prescribed pain medicines in the same way because there's always an assumption that either we can we can take pain more which was one study that was done by recent med students or that we're always trying to just get opioids which opioids i hate to say it that's not a black thing white (laughs) white people (laughs) hello that's that's not what we do we like to drink and do a few other things but you know the opioids not so much um you know and and it's it's all just kind of navigating the nuances and never being sure if the interaction you're having is race-based or situation-based. Mm-hmm. Like, and, until somebody does something over it, you're never really sure if you're just dealing with a jerk or a bigot or a little yep. bit of both. Um, yep. And so, you know, endemic years of hypertension and heart stroke, uh, dealing with that stuff later because you just don't know. And that's stressful. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, that takes, that takes a toll. So the, yeah, the message, white people be a real ally in my experience. I have, yeah, I know I've witnessed and been, I've taken much advantage of the the systemic racism of the justice system. Um, unfortunately, so is there anything else that you would like to to discuss and talk about in our, in our last 10 minutes or so? Well, you know, I was, I was looking at your questionnaire uh, before we got online and I was thinking about kind of the, the idea of your show, Um, this idea of kind of Gen Xers, Zennials and elder millennials and how they're moving through life. And I, I think I, I am technically a zennial. Like I'm a, I was born in the Gen X years, uh, but I could be classified as a zennial. But I think in my in my soul, uh, in my energy, I'm I'm Gen X kind of. Oh yeah, energy. totally. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know, I I I think what what's really fascinating about this topic is that you know this time period that we grew up in um, that didn't have a whole lot of time for your feelings. It didn't have a, little, mm-hmm. a whole lot of time for um, individualism. Well, the TV uh, raised it, me, so it wasn't asking me how I felt. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, like we we were playing a game with my. I was playing a game with my in laws, my sister in law and, and and her husband, and they it was like guess that jingle, and it was it was television every commercial commercials from the eighties, and I knew. I mean, every single one. Yep, I knew. To well, beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Pickles, onions on a bun. Absolutely. And, you know, and so I was thinking kind of like, what does that, what does that do to, because, you know, this is, this is the generation that's kind of being given the mantle of leadership now. And, and what does that really mean in terms of, of progress for our country? So I've always thought that the United States is in its cultural adolescence. You know, it's, uh, we're still very much a preteen, you know, we're going to win. And my, my group is better than your group and you're not one of us. And so you're bad. And, and, (laughs) and so this is a lot of like residual boomer bullshit. And, and that I, I would hope that we progress through because really that's, that's the only way that we're going to kind of, um, overcome these challenges. But what makes our generation or our groups 
particularly suited in doing this is that we were kind of just taught to fight. And mm-hmm. I, and I don't know that, that I, in a way that I don't think that, that, uh, the Zennial or what is it? I know generation Y and I guess our, our kids are now gen alpha. I don't think that they really understand what that, what that kind of looked like to, to stand up and realize your identity, realize who you are and find a space for yourself in a time where nobody gave a shit about you. Like mm-hmm. nobody cared. Oh, look at you. Why are you crying? This can look at, look at John. He's crying over there, you know, and we're going to label him with all of these labels because he's a boy and he's crying. Uh, and so being that toughness that you form, you know, whatever your identity is, uh, is something that I think makes us particularly suited to move our country forward. The challenges, <laughs> and we're seeing that with like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who God yeah. is from my home state and Lauren Boebert, who's from my current state. Uh, so Nikum poops all around the challenges that, it's we are no longer a country where the thinking advance, where the thinking are heard. You know, we are still in this in this space where we are responding the way that children respond. Uh, and even and I think even with people who who really want to be allies, who really want to do what's right, uh, because a lot of groups were never taught to think and assess the situation, they they act or they speak before they have really kind of worked it out, uh, which is a shame because, you know, it, it's not like they couldn't be the person that they're trying to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I think a lot about my advocacy for groups outside of myself and man, did I fuck it up <laughs> like, so many times that I get it wrong, you know? And I think back on my, on my youth, my, so my oldest friend from college uh, came out in, uh, I want to say it was our junior year or end of our sophomore year. And he ran for student class vice president. Uh, and and he, he got just completely eviscerated. He was attacked from every side. Uh, and I didn't really know how to deal with it. Um, and I remember he the night before the election, we got called into the dean's students. And I'm gonna I'm gonna name his name because I hope that if he hears it, he he recognizes his failure. His name uh, was uh, Brian Pfeiffer, and he called us in to tell us that you know you, he was kicking Paul out of the election um, because Paul had election flyers up after the deadline to have them down. Now, Paul and I had spent hours going through every building, every dorm, pulling these flyers down. But, I mean, this was this was before stuff was done on – this was before social media, right? So the flyers were paper. You taped them to the wall, vote for Paul. And so clearly what had happened was somebody had taken a few down and stuck them back up after he, he – uh, <laughs> after he was uh, – after the deadline. And so we kind of pointed this out. And he's like, I can't know that for sure, so you you can't run anymore. And I remember being so angry in that moment. But I, if it had been an issue of blackness, I could have dealt with. And but because it was an issue of Paul being gay, I had never been taught how that those that those were actually two sides of the same coin. You know, mm-hmm. when you're part of a community that's being told you're other, like. You, 
all those communities are allies. Mm-hmm. You are all you are all united against the overall uh, design of a of a culture that never found a place for us at the table. The bump, um, the Gen but, X bumper sticker that said "Subvert the dominant paradigm" was so ubiquitous <laughs> in the nineties. Okay, so oh, yeah. you know I'm not a church girl anymore, but I, I can find the the, the beauty in the, in the Psalms. But he had this Psalm on his desk that said, "Lord, make me an instrument of Thy peace. Where there's hatred, let there be love. Where there's injury, pardon, etc." And I remember thinking, like, why? Like you you thought this was important enough to have this on your desk. Why are you not living by these words? Why are, why is it not paramount for you if you believe in God and Christianity or whatever? Why isn't it why isn't it important for you to to find empathy and understanding for this 19-year-old boy and and my friend was openly crying uh in this meeting who was showing vulnerability and weakness and incredible courage for running uh, gay at a men's college where black masculinity was the be all and above all. Uh, why is it that this this person, this leader of supposed men, could not find it within himself to be better? Uh, and I remember thinking, I I hope I hope that I will never be in that situation. That I will never be this guy sitting behind this desk telling someone that they are not enough to be in my space. Uh, and, and I, and I think that's why I fight so much all the time. Uh, and even in my, in the INGO that we worked at, um, yep. you know, even in my department now where I am the only black male identifying person that's been there in the last six years, period. There has not been another one. Uh, and fighting for the, the space and the equity. I mean, and scientists are such full of shit. We, we just had a guest lecturer who said that black women are overweight because they have low self-esteem. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Listener, my face like, is scrunching. <laughs> I am balling my hands into fists. And, and, and some people may think I'm, I'm exaggerating that. That was the entire argument of her paper. That how, black women how did were that overweight. get past a peer review? Did it? Is it published? Because well, you... It's published because you have to look at who's reviewing. White people. If, ev- if everybody who's reviewing is like, yeah, it makes sense that black women feel bad about themselves. Uh, of, of course, of course they do, right? And 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 if clearly they have never known black women. <laughs> because, oh my god! Because, you know, for for those of us who are blessed to grow up in black spaces with black women, we know that is far from the truth, and gain a lot of power from the lessons that they treat teach us. Uh, but there it is. And she's, and being only a person of color, you know, I had to challenge that, that notion. Uh, and so, but then you also have this, this payoff of always being the one who challenges people stop hearing the words that you say. And even though I can articulate myself, well, guilty (laughs) people stop hearing what I say too. (laughs) I'm like always the one to speak up my NGO that I worked for, for many years, aside from the other one we worked for together. I, I never got promoted. They could never fire me because I did good work, but I never got promoted because I was always, you know, why are there only white people in senior vice president roles? Why is the CEO of this humanitarian aid organization white? Why is everybody white when none of the clients 
like maybe 25% of the clients are, if that. <laughs> right. I mean, how many, how, many, how many people of color were expats when we worked in our region in Southern Africa? Oh, my God. We had God. one. We had one in South Africa. And that was it. And, yep. and, they, and they didn't like him very much either. Yeah. <laughs> and treated him accordingly. <laughs> so, so uh, and, then, and then we had these other expats who were doing all kinds of nefarious shit, and they were just being moved around like, like Catholic priests. Uh, and, and so it's, that's it's this the idea, like, well, world. why do we keep giving these people jobs? Yeah. Why do we keep giving them jobs? Mm-hmm. If this is the way that they're going. Oh, doing John, it? we should have uh, another, so, I don't know. we should have another scathing, scathing episode on, um, the INGO world <laughs> because I have, there's so much, so much we could fit in. <laughs> I, I will be happy to rant for an hour on ING work. And for someone who, who's grassroots, like when you, when you go to the Peace Corps, you know, you learn to do uh, work miracles from nothing. And then you look at the mm-hmm. way the INGO just pisses away money. Uh, I, I just can't, I, I don't know. I would, I don't, at this point I would never donate to an INGO my money. I would, you know, donate to specific Peace Corps projects or like food kitchens, or I donate time. But there's no, there's no way. Your hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars will go so far if you mm. donate to those organizations. Right. If you donate to the big INGOs, it's going to pay the people their fat headquarters salaries to raise more funding from rich people. <laughs> That's the T. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyways, my rant. Well, it's getting late <laughs> here, and so we have to wrap up. Uh, but thank you so much. This was so much fun. I really appreciate I had, your I had time. A good time. Thank we you. should do this more often. Maybe I need a co-host. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 happy to come anytime to 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 rant and rave. Um, you know, it's I think that what I appreciate about your efforts is um, is it just being willing to just look and ask questions of people who maybe never got to never who've never been asked those questions you know and um and i i think that when we come to the end of whatever it is we try to do um, with this project or what you're trying to do with this project i hope that those of us those people who listen gain an understanding that we're releasing pressure and so it seems like it, it may have come off that I'm walking around fully angry all the time, but I, I just don't get a lot of time, to, a lot of opportunities to talk about this. And and so when you were, live in a society where so many people are holding in uh, their experiences, um, and I mean, I think particularly now, I think about the kids in Texas right now, I think about the kids in oh, Florida God. right now, you know, who are having their identities legislated against by the government. You know, these forums can feel angry, but they really are cathartic and they're a way for us to just say the things that we walk around internalizing. Uh, and, and, but still have, still have, I still have to go upstairs and make dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. And I still have to grade papers after I'm done here and prepare my next lecture and all of these other things. Uh, and so while these experiences don't dominate our lives, an opportunity to talk about them. Um, is very therapeutic. And I already feel 
10 times better because I haven't had to code switch for the last hour. So this yes. is great. So now I get to go upstairs. <laughs> now I get to go upstairs and have fun with my kids and cook dinner. So Excellent. thank you for that opportunity. <laughs> yes. Well, we are the anti-code switching podcast. I can't wait for you to hear the, uh, the other two episodes with, uh, queer people <laughs> that I've recorded this week. So we, I, I, I can't, I can't wait to, to learn something like I'm, I'm, you know, if there's any way I can do better, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for those opportunities. So thank excellent. you. Excellent. Okay, John, well have a good evening and we'll see you later. All right. We'll take care. Love okay. you. Bye.